Well, it is good to see you. Do you have a Bible? Okay. Uh, we have some out with sickness. Some others I thought would be here, but they're not here yet. So let us forge on, and we begin with, uh, this is the third of three on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the third article of the Creed. So let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O God, you once taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant us in our day by the same Spirit to have a right understanding in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy consolation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now, you will notice the icon on page 154, which has a ship on the sea. Jesus is in the boat, and four disciples are letting down a net for the draft of fish. The, the ship symbolizes what? Don't all talk at once. Really, you don't know? The church. The ship symbolizes the church. Jesus is in the boat. He's in the ship. The disciples are in the ship. The fish that they're gathering into the ship or into the church, what do they signify? Sinners being brought to repentance and faith. Okay. So what would the net be that catches them? Okay, the gospel that catches them. And of course, the ministry of the gospel and the sacraments, you could also include. But so by the word of the gospel, they're gathered in, brought to faith, and brought into the church. That's why this room is called a nave that you're sitting in. That's named after the hull of, the sh of a ship, the nave, okay? And it's kind of shaped like that. So as we have been discussing the, um, and then if you'll flip to page 159, we've been discussing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry is a ministry that is conducted by preaching and by teaching, and by the sacraments of holy baptism, and holy absolution, and the holy supper of our Lord, these are the means of the Spirit, the instruments of the Spirit. So, you know, I had made the point, just to bring us back into remembering some of the things that we said, in the first article of the Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I mean, we live in the world, so you could say, God made the world and everything in it. He made the universe and all things, and he sustains them, so you can see what he has done in that sense. Uh, our Lord Jesus, when we looked at the second article of the Creed, the Son of God, his incarnation, the enfleshment, his conception and birth, his crucifixion, where he made atonement for sin, he died bodily upon the cross, and then 
the resurrection and ascension into heaven. He rose bodily from the dead and ascended into heaven. So that's concrete stuff that you can see. And then we look forward to his second coming again in glory. The third article, I had made the point with us on the first uh, two sessions that some, for some, that's more uh, ambiguous. It's not as concrete, but it actually is concrete if you think about preaching. If you think about what goes on in Didache as we read the scriptures and as we just study the scriptures, that's the means of the Spirit to bring us to faith, to enlighten us uh, with what Christ has done for us. Remember the five things under the uh, third article, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. Well, that's the ship there, uh, symbolized by the ship. It's the congregation of all believers in Christ, among whom the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered. The communion, which is a fellowship of saints. Saints are forgiven sinners. So what we're doing here at, I mean, we, this fellowship that is created by the word draws us to the altar to receive his body and blood, to be in communion with him. So the communion of saints is the fellowship of forgiven sinners. And of course, at the center of the third article, Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. You, you take the forgiveness of sins out for Jesus' sake, and there is no gospel to be preached. There's no content to the sacraments. There's no fellowship of forgiveness. Since sin is the cause of death, where there's forgiveness of sins, which the Spirit ministers to us through word and sacrament, there's then life and salvation, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So those are the five things there. Let's go ahead and um, confess together the meaning of the third article, okay? What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. So stopping there just for a moment, faith is a miracle. We cannot bring ourselves to faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the miracle of faith by the call of the gospel. Do you remember I talked to you about the phrase enlightened me with his gifts, and I asked what are the gifts specifically that the catechism is referring to? Do you remember what they are? I already mentioned them again tonight. The holy sacraments. Yep, holy baptism, holy absolution, holy supper. So, called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, the gifts of the sacraments. This is how he sanctifies, makes us holy, and keeps us in the true faith. Continue on. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. So, what he does for me as an individual, bringing me to faith, enlightening me with the gifts of the sacraments, he does for the whole Christian church on earth. And then the next sentence, in this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. 
On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. So you have the emphasis there in the explanation of how the Holy Spirit, by the gospel and the sacraments, calls us to faith and enlightens us. And what the Spirit does in the church is bestows Jesus' forgiveness. And did you guys pick up Bibles when you came in? Do you have your Bibles? Okay, good. And we're on page 159 of Lutheran Catechesis. So he calls us by the gospel to faith, enlightens us with his gifts, and by the gospel and sacraments, he ministers Christ's forgiveness to us, which on the last day will raise us all from the dead and give us the gift of eternal life. Okay, um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, a rather lengthy reading for tonight, but it is the day of Pentecost <clears throat> in which the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles so that they could faithfully remember and preach what Jesus had taught them. We see on Pentecost the things that Jesus talked about in his catechesis in the first two uh, readings on the third article when back in 2021. And I'd like to remember, we had the washing of the disciples' feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. It was symbolic, this foot washing of the washing away of sin, forgiving sin. Uh, we're bathed in the waters of baptism, and yet we need the ongoing washing. That's the ongoing ministry of the Spirit. It's the ministry of love. Do you remember in that reading, um, he said, um, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, if you have forgiveness for one another. Or, as I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. If I have forgiven you, you also ought to forgive one another. So the forgiveness of sins was central to that reading, the ministry of the Spirit. The, the communication of love is done by the communication of the forgiveness of sins to broken and contrite uh, hearts. Then the last uh, night before our Christmas break, we heard about the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Do you remember? The Holy Spirit has to convict us of sin. If we're not brought to a knowledge of our sin, if we're not brought to repentance, we'll have no use for Christ. But to come to know and believe that our sin is significant and real before God and that we need a Savior, that's the work of the Spirit. So he'll convict the world of sin because the world doesn't believe, Jesus said. He'll convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father. And we spent all of that time talking about Jesus going to the Father is going to his death as the sacrifice for sin. And he offers up his blood to make payment for sin. And so his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, it all goes, and ascension all goes together as part of the whole where he, as the offering for sin, uh, offers his blood before the Father to make atonement for sin. So 
the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father with my blood. I have paid the price for sin. So the convicting of sin has its counterpart in being convicted that Christ is my righteousness. He has died for me. He has poured forth his blood for my salvation. And then the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world stands judged or condemned. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan. Okay? And he stands judged. So the conviction of sin is not a pleasant thing. But in the proclamation of the gospel, we are convicted that Christ is our righteousness. We stand fully and totally forgiven in what Jesus has done. And the Holy Spirit calls us to trust this, calls us to receive this and to believe this. And then that also means he's calling us to believe that the prince of this world who wants to accuse us of sin is judged. He's condemned. You can't accuse me of sin because... Christ, my Savior, the Son of God, has gone to the Father, and he has paid for my sin. You follow that? So we talked about the ministry of the Spirit, convicting of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. In today's reading, then, on the day of Pentecost, we'll see that convicting taking place. Do you remember how in the Catechesis of Jesus, in the previous two lessons on the Spirit, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So we emphasize this is very, and all I'm doing with you right now is reviewing what we've already done on the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit's message is Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't proclaim himself. The Holy Spirit proclaims Christ, his death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit calls to repentance and proclaims Christ's forgiveness. When the Spirit comes, Jesus said, he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Okay. And then to the twelve, he said, he will bring to your remembrance everything I said to you. And so we have the inspiration of the apostolic scriptures, which is the word of God inspired by the Spirit. So we have the record of Jesus' ministry that the apostles wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit. And we continue to preach from the apostolic scriptures today. The only authority I have is the prophetic Old Testament and apostolic New Testament scriptures. Okay. So on the day of Pentecost, what happens is the Holy Spirit, 50 days after Easter is Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the 12, and they begin to do what Jesus said they would do. He would bring, the Spirit would bring to their remembrance what he taught them, and they would be faithfully preaching his word. Okay. Um, let's see. I wanted to say one other thing, and now it's gone from my from my mind at the moment. Um, well, it'll come back. Has that ever happened to you, Melissa? All the time. Okay. So we're in Acts chapter two. Oh, yes, this is it, the day of Pentecost. 
Um, it's actually an Old Testament feast that's brought into the New Testament. The Old Testament Pentecost was about 50 days after the Passover. Remember when the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt? What brought about their release from slavery, their redemption from slavery? Speak up. The shedding of the Passover lamb's blood. Remember it was shed, it was poured on, it was smeared on the doorposts and the lintels. The blood of the Passover lamb brought about their redemption from slavery. That Passover lamb, whose blood brought about their redemption from slavery, pointed forward to the true lamb of God. The blood of Jesus brings about our redemption. Then they journeyed out of Egypt. They're set free. And they cross through the Red Sea, the wilderness and the Red Sea, and they come to Mount Sinai. It's about 50 days after the Passover. And what do they receive there but the word of the Lord? Not just the Ten Commandments, but they receive the word of the Lord there. Now, do you see the correspondence? Jesus is our true Passover lamb. He is sacrificed for our redemption from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. On the day of Pentecost, Pentecost is all about the word of God, the word of the gospel. Do you see the parallel there? So as they were redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb and received the word at Mount Sinai, which the Torah was thought of as the word of life, okay, so were redeemed by the blood of Christ, and in the preaching of the gospel word, we receive and come to know and believe in the benefits. Do you see the, do you see the parallel there? Okay, so Pentecost, Jewish pilgrims were there in Jerusalem because if you went to a pilgrim feast, the most important one was Passover, you tended to stay because you were on these long journeys from around the Mediterranean. You'd come and you'd stay for the day of Pentecost. Okay, so it's important for you to kind of have that picture in your mind. Why were these, all of these Jews in Jerusalem? Because they'd been there for the Passover. And if they'd been there for the Passover in 33 AD, what would they have come to know about? And what would many of those people who had been there for the Passover have witnessed? Jesus' crucifixion. Yes. And they would have also heard the reports of his resurrection. Okay. So they, they were there for the Passover, which means they were there for Jesus' crucifixion, and then they are there for the Feast of Pentecost, which is an Old Testament feast, but instead of celebrating the word of the law given on Sinai, the apostles are going to preach the word of the gospel. Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Like, remember one of our first readings, our second reading in Didache, I haven't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. Okay? So they are going to preach. What they want to show is, look, all of these, the temple stuff, all the worship stuff at the temple, all of the sacrifice is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the Son of God, and he was sacrificed for us on the cross. And in the word of the gospel, uh, forgiveness is proclaimed. Okay? So... That's the other thing I wanted you to see, the connection. What is Passover? Uh, what is Pentecost? And its connection to the Old Testament. Okay? So, 
Acts chapter 2, there are events that take place that are the signs, okay? Miraculous signs. Signs point, uh, signs are intended to teach something. Like, like the net uh, that they captured the fish in and then the, the ship began to sink, you know, that's a sign. The point is not that um, uh, believe in Jesus and you'll be able to catch lots of fish. You know, give up this mechanic stuff and become a fisherman, and you'll have super abundant fish. That's not the point. The point is the church gathers in sinners of every tribe and nation, calling them to repentance and faith. Okay? So the signs of Pentecost are not the, uh, what the Holy Spirit, the point is, they're pointing to what the Holy Spirit's work is. All right, so chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, the pronoun they refers back to the end of chapter 11. It's referring to the apostles, those who had been handpicked by Jesus to be his witnesses. And suddenly there came from heaven, the sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So there is the first sign. A rushing mighty wind. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. There's the second sign. You got wind and tongues of fire that rest upon the apostles. These are the guys that were with Jesus Listen to them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. There's the third sign. Give me another word for tongues here. Languages. So they began to speak with other languages as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gave them utterance. So you got three signs. Wind, tongues of fire marking them, and they're preaching the gospel in other languages. Now what Luke, his, the one who wrote Acts, what he describes next is, you can imagine, these are Jewish pilgrims. And they come from all over the Mediterranean world. Because the Jews at various times in the Old Testament had been scattered. So if you lived, if you were a Jew and you lived in, in Italy, you would speak Maybe you would know Hebrew, but you would speak, well, Italian or something like that, huh? Or uh, Latin was one of the languages of the empires. But you would, you, would, you would speak the language of the country that you lived in. So if you went, let's say, you could compare it like this, too. Let's say we had a grand... Christians held a grand uh, trip to the Holy Land. See the biblical sites. And there were those that came from Sweden and Norway and Denmark. There were those who came from Nigeria and Tanzania. There were the Christians that came from uh, Russia or from China. And then there were those that came from uh, the United States, Great Britain. And you went to Israel, 
Well, nowadays, everybody in the world speaks English, it seems like. But if we're in the ancient world, would you expect to hear English there? No, that's your language. Would you expect to hear Swedish there if you came from Sweden? Would you expect to hear Swedish? No, okay. You'd expect to hear Hebrew and Aramaic, the languages of Jerusalem and Judea. Do you follow what I'm saying? So these Jewish pilgrims, the same thing, they're, they're gathering in Jerusalem from all around the Mediterranean, and many of them had no doubt come to Passover and Pentecost in previous years. But this year was different as they hear apostles preaching in their own native language in which they were born. And what are they preaching? They're preaching the gospel. So that's what verse 5 and following is about. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, remember the rushing wind, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. We're not accustomed to this. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the temple in Jerusalem. They speak Hebrew there. We're not expecting the languages out of the countries that we came. Are you with me? Are you following me? Okay. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans, which is the province north of Jerusalem, How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And these are all the regions that they came from. And there's about 12 regions. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, which would be the fertile crescent of Iraq and Iran uh, today. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt. There's northern Africa and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and those who had been proselytes, converts to the Jewish faith, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, okay, in our own languages, the wonderful works of God. Okay, so I'd mentioned the signs. Remember, the signs are not the purpose of Pentecost, but they do teach us something. The tongues of fire mark, these are the guys who were with Jesus. Listen to them. Rushing wind. The Holy Spirit's work is like the wind. Jesus himself talks about this. You you see the influence of it, but you don't necessarily see the wind. You can see the trees blowing, but you can't see the wind itself. You can see what the wind carries along, you know. So the work of the Spirit, you see the results of it in people coming to faith. You see, uh, the, you hear the preaching of the gospel. Maybe the preacher is full of a lot of hot air, so you can make that connection with the wind. But the, the breath of God, the spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind. So the spirit's working is like the wind who blows where he wishes. And then the languages. The point of the gift of the Holy Spirit is not that now I can, I didn't have to go to learn any languages to go to the seminary. I just miraculously you know, knew the languages. No, that's not the purpose of the Spirit coming. What would the purpose of them being able to speak the gospel, preach the gospel in all of these languages, what does that teach? 
about the gospel. It's for all people from every tribe and nation. Now, these are Jews that are there, but the fact that the languages from the non-Jewish countries out of which they came was used uh, makes that particular point. See, see how the signs serve to talk something about the ministry of the Spirit. Now, so far through verse 11, we haven't heard what they're preaching. We've heard of the signs. We've heard of who was there. Okay? But we haven't heard the content of what they're preaching. Verse 12. They, the people who heard, were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Now remember at the end of verse 11, it says they were preaching the wonderful works of God. The wonderful works of God. As the chapter unfolds, you hear what the wonderful works of God are. The gift of his son, the death of his son upon the cross, his crucifixion, his glorious resurrection from the dead the third day, and the proclamation of forgiveness in his name, and the promise of resurrection to all who believe and are baptized. These are the wonderful works of God. Okay? We have another name for that, a technical name. Does anybody know what it is? The gospel, the good news of what Christ has done. And it's a message of salvation by grace and not by works. So they're all perplexed. Whatever could this mean? Verse 13, others mocking said, they're full of new wine. Do you know what that expression means? Josh, do you know? Drunk, yeah. So when they're hearing the apostles preach, the people are perplexed, and some of them are saying, these guys are drunk. Now, why would the preaching of the gospel, the wonderful works of God, make them think they were drunk? Were they slurring their speech? No. Were they staggering around? No. Can you think of a reason? Why would the gospel being preached result in the accusation, you're drunk. Or you could say, out of your mind. Are you crazy? Ty? Does it make sense to an... What doesn't make sense? Uh, the, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot comprehend it. That's true. But what is, what is it that doesn't make sense? You're forgiven for what you just did? for what Jesus did, on account of what Jesus did. Okay, the message of the gospel is the message of forgiveness as a gift of God's grace through the death of his son. I mean, think of the absurdity. What do you trust in for your salvation? A crucified Jew on a criminal's cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. That's my salvation. You're either nuts or you're drunk or you're on drugs to those who do not believe. Okay? As St. Paul calls the message of the cross foolishness to those who are perishing. So that's, part, that's the accusation here. 
It wasn't because they were slurring their speech. Jesus of Nazareth is... No, that's not it at all. It has to do with the content of the message. But we still have not heard yet in this reading the content of the message, have we? Now, verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them... Now, Peter's going to answer the accusation that's coming upon them because of the message. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Now, I want to just pause there. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. So, what you, we're not drunk. We're not drunk. What's happening is what Joel wrote about when God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay. What have they been doing, the apostles? Simple. What, what, what have they been doing that caused the accusation that they're drunk? What have they been doing? Preaching. Preaching. Preaching what? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will pour out my spirit. This is what Joel wrote. I will pour out my spirit. What you're witnessing is God pouring out his spirit. Are you with me? What have they been doing? They've been preaching. So, how does God pour out his spirit? Through preaching of the gospel. Through preaching of the word. Do you follow that? You can't ever divorce the word and the preaching of the word from the ministry of the spirit. Don't ever do that. Okay? They have been preaching. You're drunk. The content of their preaching is what caused them to think they're full of new wine. It's not like, oh, they're preaching. Oh, that seems quite about reasonable indeed. And now something else is happening that's causing the, that's the Spirit's work. No, the preaching of the gospel is what they're reacting to. And so Peter, quoting from Joel, says, no, we're not drunk. God said in Joel, I'll pour out my Spirit. So how does he pour out his Spirit? Through preaching. Are you with me? Is anybody confused about that at all? Bob, are you with me? So he pours out a spirit through preaching, right? And it's the preaching of the gospel, okay? Now, I want to pause here a minute. The language of Joel you're not accustomed to. You hear of prophecy. What does anybody think? When you think of prophecy, what do you think of? Don't you answer, because you... Somebody else, you prophecy. Anybody? You can be wrong. I want you to be wrong. If, if you're not... What's that? Future events. Predicting of future events, yeah. Okay? I think that's a major thing that people think about with prophecy. Predicting of the future. But that's not what the word actually means. The word prophecy means to proclaim the word of God. It's sometimes... There is an element of future predicting, like when in the scriptures, the word of God predicted Jesus' birth, 
in Bethlehem. Sometimes there is that. But the heart of prophesying is proclamation of the word. Okay? Um, can you say this with me? Can you all join in a strong voice? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Can you say that? Okay. Is that true? Where did it come from? It's the creed, but where did the creed come from? God's word. Is it true? Okay. Are you proclaiming that? That's prophecy. Prophecy is any time the word of God is spoken forth. Okay? So that's why I say you don't understand the language of the prophets here. God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit in the latter days. Oh, latter days. What do maybe most people think about, about the expression, the latter days, Brian? Future event. And here, Peter's saying, the future is now. Here already, this is within 50 days of Jesus' resurrection, he's calling it the latter days. How about that? So it's the latter days. The Spirit is being poured out by preaching of the gospel. Prophecy is to proclaim the word of God. Now, are you a prophet? Well, not in a canonical sense in the Old Testament, but if you proclaim the word of God, that's a prophetic utterance. Okay? So when it says, going on, it shall come to pass in the last days, verse 17, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, there's preaching, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Aha. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Again, that's through the word. And they shall prophesy. They shall speak forth the word. So sons and daughters, men and women, are proclaimers of the word. We're not talking about the office of the ministry or the office of being a pastor. But all of us as Christians hear the word, come to believe the word, and confess the word. Proclaim the word. Speak of what Christ has done. We do this in a variety of contexts. Parents, Christian parents with their children. Okay? Brothers and sisters in Christ with one another. When we gather at a divine service like last night and sang the Epiphany hymns and heard the choir sing, that's a form of prophecy as well. As we're proclaiming, uh, the message of the epiphany of our Lord, the revelation of Jesus as the Savior of all. Okay, now we still haven't gotten to the content of the message. And you might say, well, Pastor, get to the point. Well, I'm just trying, I'm, I'm, we're reading God's word here. So if this is the way it's recorded, we ought to pay attention to the way it's recorded there. We might, maybe God wants us to learn something, otherwise it wouldn't be written there this way, okay? This verses 17 through 21, he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel, and it's a, it's a lot of prophetic speak, and that's why learning, learning biblical vocabulary is helpful to interpret it and understand it rightly, 
Okay. Now, before then going on to the rest of this prophecy, and then it's after this prophecy that Peter gets to the content, Jesus' death and resurrection. Given everything we've said back in December in the first two lessons on the Holy Spirit, if you just boil it down to what is the Holy Spirit's job or mission or work in the hearts of people, in the hearts of sinners, what would you say? Just boil it down to its essence. And because if you don't know this, then I've failed utterly. What is the essence of the Holy Spirit's work? What? You said that with a question mark at the end. Conversion? What does that mean? Boy, boy, don't be simple. Be simple. You're not incorrect at all. What, what did you say, Ty? To create, to create faith. Faith has to have an object. In Christ. Now, does that statement sound like, is that really what the Spirit's work is? To create faith in Christ? Does that come as a surprise to anybody, given our discussions? Okay, to boil it down to its essence, the Spirit's work is to create faith in Christ. That's what that's about. You know, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's about the creation of faith. That's what we just went through in the catechism as a refresher. I can't believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. Called me to what? Called me to faith in Jesus. That's it. That's the Spirit's work. Okay? If you believe in Jesus, do you call upon him, Lord, help me, Lord, save me, Lord, forgive me? Would, would you do that if you believe in Jesus? Or would you not do that? Becca, would you do that? Would you say, Lord, help me? This is not a trick, this is not a trick question. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say, Lord, help me, Lord Jesus, forgive me. You wouldn't say that if you believe in him? No, if you believed in him, would you call upon him? And I saw, you head, I saw your head shake no. That's why I asked. You wouldn't do that? No. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, would you call upon him yes. for help, yes. for forgiveness, yes. for salvation? Yes. And then why? why would you do that? Because you believe in him. Okay, you see, I, I'm not trying to be complicated with you. I'm trying to be as basic and simple as possible. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, who does that? Who calls upon him? Those who believe in him. Now, let's take it the other way. If you don't believe in Jesus, are you going to call upon him for help or forgiveness or salvation? Brian? No. If you believe in him, you call upon him. If you don't believe in him, you don't call upon him. So at the end of this prophecy, verse 21, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who calls on the name of the Lord? Those who believe in him. 
Who doesn't call on the name of the Lord? Those who don't believe in him. Do you follow? Okay. So the essence of the Spirit's work is to bring us to faith, to bring us to faith in Christ. Because you've got to have an, faith has to have an object. Okay. Can I make a second point that builds on this? If someone has faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, life, salvation, something flows from this faith that is very future-oriented. We're looking forward to it. But we may not realize it in this life yet, but we're looking forward to it. What's, what is that? What did you say? The second coming? Resurrection? Yeah, and the word that Becca used was hope. Is um, like the third article of the creed Holy Spirit, Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Would that be a good thing? The resurrection of the body. Kirsten, will that be a good thing? Well, is that what the resurrection means? Now, you haven't been, I'll let you off the hook because you haven't been in. So, on the last day, we'll rise from the dead and we'll be just as miserably sinful as we were before we died. Is that what the resurrection is? I hope you don't believe that. No, the resurrection means that the corruption of sin will be no more. We'll be raised from the dead, but without any sin whatsoever. And then everlasting life means that we will never... What? will never die. That's immortality. So immortality and... Does that sound like a good thing, Kevin? Mm. We're so wrapped up in life in this world, we can't fathom the resurrection to eternal life. Do you really want to continue to live in this world with COVID-19 or cancer or heart disease and all that stuff? Would you rather stay in this type of setting? I hope not. Where there's faith in Christ, that's the work of the Spirit, there is the hope of the resurrection of eternal life at Christ's second coming. Okay? But we, do, we, do we see and experience that now? Hope. No, we don't. Why do you hope for things if you already have them? You hope for that which you don't yet have. Where there's faith in Christ, there's the hope of the resurrection to eternal life. It's a glorious vision, so to speak. Why go through this explanation? It's because of the prophecy that you don't understand. And you read parts of the Bible like this because you spend too much time on Facebook and Twitter and whatever, 
oh my, look at that look there, Melissa. Oh, okay. Oh, and you're doing it back again. We, we're, we get so much input, you know, from so many other voices in the culture that sometimes when we look at Bible texts, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense to us. Okay? So look at this prophecy, given what we've said about the Spirit's work of creating faith, and then from faith, hope. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, verse 17, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. How does he do, do that, Brian? Through? Through preaching of, of, of the gospel. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So those who come to faith, we prophesy. We speak the word of God that we have received. We speak it. Your young men shall see vision. Your old men shall dream dreams. There's the reference to hope. Are these nightmares? You know, your, your young men shall be scared to death of nightmares. No, visions. Old men shall dream dreams. You have any arthritis, Bob? You look forward not to have arthritis? Does your back ache? Your hips? Can you open your fingers all the way? Or are they like a typical dairy farmer? In a, in a constant, okay. So your old men shall dream dreams. Boy, I look forward to being set free from the shackles of my body's infirmities that are caused by sin. So that's all, what, what Joel's prophecy does that Peter quotes here. We're not drunk. This message of the gospel is to give you the gift of faith and salvation in Christ, and with that, the glorious hope of the resurrection. So he's describing what happens in the Spirit's ministry from in the latter days, from the time of Pentecost all the way until Christ's second coming, where through preaching, people are brought to faith in Christ, convicted of their sin, of the righteousness of Christ, and of the judgment of the evil one. And with their faith in Christ, they're given the glorious hope of the resurrection. I will pour out my Spirit in those days, the end of verse 18, and they shall prophesy. That's why the church continues to gather together in good times and in bad times to hear the word by which the Spirit ministers to us and then to prophesy, to confess, to sing our hymns, to recite the catechism, all of these things where we are speaking forth God's word and confessing our hope in the resurrection. We do it at every Christian funeral. The body of the deceased lies before us lifeless, cold, and dead. And we say, though he may die, yet shall he live. I know that my Redeemer lives, Job said. And he said that when he was sick. He had lost his wealth and his property and everything. I know that my Redeemer lives. That's hope. And 
on the last day I shall stand upon this earth. After the worms have destroyed my body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He is confessing the vision, the dream, the hope of resurrection to eternal life and to see Christ and to be with him. So we don't believe in Jesus now just for now. We believe in Jesus now also for the life to come. And the movement of the Christian faith and life is always the pilgrimage toward the resurrection and eternal life. That's what we're looking forward to. Otherwise, like St. Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all people most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead. And so I look forward to being raised from the dead. Right now, I find myself in St. Paul's position. The good that I would do, I don't do. That which I would not is the very thing that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God who gives me the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. And I look forward to that being set free once and for all from the ongoing problem of sin and its corruption. And that's in the resurrection everlasting life, okay? So the Spirit's work through the preach, he's poured out through preaching. Spirit's work is to bring us to faith in Christ, and out of that faith in Christ, there's a living hope. And that's what the Joel prophecy is about. But there's more. Verse 19 says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable or awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So now you got more prophet talk in verses 19 and 20. Wonders in heaven above, signs in blood and fire and vapor, smoke and sun turned into darkness and the moon into blood before or at the threshold, literally, the of the, of the awesome day of the Lord. What is this all about? Well, it's not as hard as you think. Most of you, I think, are familiar enough with the account of our Lord's crucifixion to be able to identify things here. Was there blood at Jesus' crucifixion? You better believe it. Now, the Jews were not, were not unaccustomed to blood being shed because the daily sacrifices, that outdoor area around the altar of burnt sacrifice was a, was a slaughterhouse. They're slitting the throats of these animals, bleeding them out, gutting them, goes down the sewer and out into the Kidron Valley, and then they roast the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Is there smoke associated with that? You know, sometimes I will do a quick uh, hamburger or something out on the grill on a Wednesday night, and I have to come in and I smell like the grill. That's just one little hamburger. You've got, you got the, you know, the burnt offerings, the smoke from that. So blood and, and fire of the sacrifices and the vapor of smoke. Well, Jesus was sacrificed on the altar of the cross. His blood was poured out. The wrath of God comes down from heaven. What are some of the other phenomena that took place on Good Friday? Darkness, yeah. 
darkness from 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was eerie, strange. It says the moon is turned into blood. That's a, an expression, a blood moon. What does that refer to, a blood moon? Does anybody know? A lunar eclipse. Where the, in a lunar eclipse, the moon, have you ever seen one? It's wild. It, it is this orangey red. It's a very strange, ominous thing. On April 3rd, 33 AD, when Jesus was crucified, the moon rose in a lunar eclipse as a blood moon. So I'll show signs. Again, signs proclaim something. Sun shall be uh, blood and fire and vapor of smoke associated with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Sun turned into darkness, the moon into the blood at the coming or at the threshold of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's why we call it Good Friday. Good Friday is the notable day of the Lord. It is the source of our salvation from sin. And therefore, Good Friday, Jesus' death is the source of our resurrection. Since sin is the cause of death, the atonement for sin is the, is the source of resurrection from the dead. Okay? And now, imagine... What's harder for us to grasp, think about the pilgrims who had been in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. Would they have witnessed? Oh, there was one other thing that was another sign that took place. Remember? Earthquake. Yeah. And the veil of the temple, its curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. So you got all of these things happening. Even the centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So if you're a pilgrim there and you're in Jerusalem, I mean, if you went to Jerusalem today and, and on a Friday um, there was a massive earthquake and there had been some kind of strange darkness covering the land from 12 noon all afternoon and then there was a lunar eclipse, do you think you'd come back to Wisconsin and talk about the phenomenon that you witnessed there? I went on this trip to the Holy Land, there was an earthquake. And what happened? Oh, nothing much. What? Okay, so they, those pilgrims were there to see these signs at the crucifixion of Jesus. So now Peter, by quoting from Joel, is reminding them of the stuff they just experienced. Are you with me there? And it's all about coming to call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. So now we get to the substance. Verse 22 and following. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, so many of them had witnessed the ministry of Jesus. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So in verses 22 through 24, 
Is he preaching Jesus Christ? Yes or no? You guys are really quiet tonight. Is he preaching Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Yes. Oh, thank you. Is he preaching the crucifixion of Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. Is he preaching the resurrection of Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. Well, you're, you're, are you, you're getting more and more quiet here. Is he exposing and pointing out their sin? Remember, the heart of sin is unbelief. I mean, the Spirit convicts the world of sin because the world does not believe. Did he, is he pointing that out? Yeah, by, you, know, you crucified him. You rejected him. But God raised him up. So in that moment, his, his call to repentance is directly related to the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, you nailed him to the tree, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of these things. It was impossible that death should, he should be held by it. So notice how the content of his preaching centers in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the call to repentance, the exposure of their sin. Now verses 25 through 28, he's going to quote from Psalm 16 in the Old Testament to show that the Christ would rise from the dead. Psalm 16 was written by David, but the words, as Peter will make clear, the words of Psalm 16 belong in the mouth of our Savior. Words in his mouth as a prayer of his directed to his Father. So David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. So I want you to imagine Jesus saying these words, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Now, Christine, this morning at Coffee Break Bible Study, remember the temptation of Jesus where the devil is saying, you can't trust your father. No, here in this psalm, my, my father is my Lord and my God. He is always before, my, before me. I will not be shaken from him. You see, okay? Therefore, again, think of Jesus saying this. My heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. Now, his flesh resting is referring to his death. When he dies... His flesh, his body will be taken down from the cross and will rest in hope. We just use the word hope that we have as Christians, and it's always about what? The hope of the what? The hope of the resurrection. Jesus died in the hope of the resurrection. When he breathed his last upon the cross, he was not yet experiencing the resurrection, but he commended himself to his Father in the sure confidence of the resurrection. So even Jesus had faith, trusted in his Father, and out of that faith rested in the hope of the resurrection. Again, imagine him saying this, verse 27, because you will not leave my soul in Hades in death, in hell the place of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So Jesus is saying he's the Holy One of God, and he's saying to his father, you will not allow me to see corruption. 
and Jesus' body did not rot in the grave. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now that's Psalm 16. Now Peter comments, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. David wrote those words. Let me speak freely to you about the patriarch David. He's dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. So his flesh underwent corruption when he died. Therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet, speaking forth God's word, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to David that of the fruit of David's body, we just came through Christmas, he will give him the throne of his father, David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he, God had sworn to an oath to David that of the fruit of David's body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, that is David, foreseeing this in that psalm we just quoted, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we, apostle guys, are witnesses. There's the climax here. He was put to death, but he was raised up, never to die again. And we're witnesses of these things. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear, namely, the preaching of this gospel. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, and he quotes one final passage from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So in those words, David is seeing conversation between the Father and the Son. The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies sin, death, and hell your footstool. Remember the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. So there's a lot crammed into this. Look at the, he preaches the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And he calls the people to repentance, to an acknowledgement of their sin, and to believe in this resurrection from the dead as the proof that his death upon the cross really did atone for sin. So he concludes, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So, Becca, what is Luke describing by saying when they heard this preaching, they were cut to the heart. Contrition, you could say that. Now, there's a reason I called on you because you used a term before which is the definition, if you will, or of being cut to the heart. You're not incorrect by saying contrition. Anybody else want to help? They're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the rest, men and brethren, what shall we do? Is that a question of faith 
or is that a question of unbelief? What should we do? Do they? When they ask that question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Are they believing what Peter preached or they're rejecting it? Which is it? Josh? They're rejecting it. Then why would they say, what shall we do? Interesting. Brian, what do you think? What's that? Why do you say that? And then he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They don't ask the question because they don't believe. They ask the question because they believe. To be cut to the heart is an expression. You got me. You've exposed me. What shall I do? Do you, do you follow? And then he says, verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. This is not the phenomenon of those rejecting the word. This is the phenomenon of those accepting the word. So they're cut to the heart. They're brought to contrition. It corresponds to what we had in the last lesson in 2021. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. They're convicted. They're cut to the heart by this preaching. What you say about us is true, and what you say about Jesus is true. He died, was crucified, and he's risen from the dead. It's, it's true. What do we do? Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you follow the trajectory of that? So the, the word I was looking for why I asked you, Becca, was conversion. They were being converted by the Spirit, a related word, this conviction of the heart to the truth of the message. Okay? Does that help? Does that make sense? Do you want to ask me something about it? Make sense? Is he telling me the truth? You're his brother. He doesn't. Oh, he doesn't lie. I'm glad to know that. Okay. Okay, so do you see, you see in, this, in this lengthy Pentecost account, you have the sign swirling about, of course, but the heart of the matter is the message of the Spirit is the message of the gospel. Peter doesn't spend all this time talking about the Holy Spirit. He preaches Christ, his death and resurrection calling them to repentance because that's the spirits. He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. He's the spirit of truth. He will testify of me, Jesus said. That's what Peter does. That's the ministry of the spirit. And we see on Pentecost, people converted. They're brought to contrition and repentance. 
and then they're baptized. Now, we'll come back to this passage on baptism when we talk about baptism. But be baptized. Notice there were two things promised here. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? Did you see verse 38? What are the two things? Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of baptism, forgiveness in the Spirit, is to you and to your children. So this is one of the passages that directly refers to children being baptized. The word here for children refers to children of all ages, from newborn infants on up. So what Peter is saying is the promise of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, given in baptism, is for all of you. You, your children, everyone whom the Lord our God will call by the gospel. Okay? And verse 40, now this is a sermon of Peter's, but it's really only an outline. He, he preached a lot more because it says, with many other words he testified and exhorted them to be saved from this perverse generation, to turn away from the perversity and evil of this unbelieving generation and trust in Christ. And the result was those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were converted, were added to the church. There's the net again with this large draft of fish and they're brought into the church, added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's what we're trying to do in Didache, is teach you the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship that that doctrine creates so that we share the same faith, the same confession. In the breaking of bread, that is a New Testament term for something. Do you know what it is? Communion, the Lord's Supper, and in the prayers, which we prayed before we started tonight. We'll pray here in a moment. Notice how verse 42 describes a lot of the concrete stuff that happens in the church's corporate worship. We preach and teach apostolic doctrine to create faith in Christ and the hope of the life to come. We preach and teach Apostolic doctrine is what binds us together in this holy Christian church, this fellowship of faith. And then out of that fellowship of faith, we then celebrate it in the Lord's Supper. That's why those, those who are baptized and receive the apostles' doctrine, where there's unity of faith, we celebrate that unity of faith at the Lord's altar. And then we pray together as a church. So that verse 42 describes so many of the elements in a general summary fashion that are part of the corporate worship life of the church, which is also then the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Other comments or questions?
see the hand go up like this, and I think that's a question. Okay. All right. Let us prepare for the sacrament. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them, and I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Most merciful God, you desire all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Grant that by the preaching of your gospel, we may be given the wisdom that leads to salvation. By the working of your Holy Spirit, keep us attentive to all the teachings of your word. Create faith in our hearts and the blessed hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Give us the fullness of life that is found only in Christ. Enable us in sincerity of heart to follow you, the only true God, by your holy word, enlighten all who are in error, doubt, or temptation with the sure and certain knowledge of your truth, that all who live in sin may be led to repentance. Show mercy and grace to all those suffering any distress, to those who are sick or hospitalized, and those facing death. Let them know the sure comfort of your holy word. We commit ourselves and all for whom we pray to your fatherly care and benediction. 
Be gracious to us and defend us by your power. Direct us by your spirit that we may daily grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior until we shall stand before you in the joy of everlasting glory. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. For what had been hidden from before the foundation of the world, you have made known to the nations in your Son, in him being found in the substance of our mortal nature. You have manifested the fullness of your glory. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. As the glory of your presence once filled your ancient temple, so in the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ, you manifested the fullness of your glory in human flesh. We give you thanks that in his most holy supper, you reveal your glory to us. Grant us faithfully to eat his body and drink his blood, so that we may one day behold your glory face to face. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen.
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting. Hear us, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.